Hello, and welcome to Why Philosophy. This is a podcast about philosophical topics and studying philosophy at BYU. In our episodes, we'll be doing a few things. First, we'll get to know professors and faculty in the BYU Philosophy Department. We'll talk about their interests, their research, and their classes. We'll also interview students and alumni who have gone off and started careers. We want this podcast to be, first and foremost, a fun and engaging show for anyone who's interested in philosophical topics. But we also want it to be a good resource for anyone thinking of majoring or minoring in philosophy, or are currently navigating the major. We will talk about how to be successful in philosophy, ideas for using your degree, and anything that will help us all move a little closer to the good life. So we hope you'll give it a listen and enjoy the show. Hi, I'm McKay Hammerstrom. Hi, I'm Brandon Asion. Hi, I am Katie Paxman. Dr. Paxman, welcome to Why Philosophy. Thank you. Very happy to be here. So, uh, to get started, would you give us some of your biographical details and please tell us how you got into philosophy? Sure. So, I'm from Canada and I did all my degree work in Canada. Um, I was actually born in Whitehorse, Yukon cold neighbor of Alaska. Um, But I only lived there until I was almost five. We moved down to Vancouver Island, which is where I grew up. Philosophy was not on my radar in high school. I was actually a sciences kind of kid who did a lot of art stuff as extracurricular. Um, I was planning on, in fact, started university as a biology student. I thought I was going to go into ecology. I loved thinking about systems and how systems worked and understanding a kind of big picture where things um, play together in a way to be productive. How I got into philosophy, the the starting place of how it even got on my radar at all, um, was actually in the extracurricular stuff. Uh, I was in a production of The Music Man. Um, I was one of the high school students in The Music Man who was in the chorus. And if you know that musical, there is a scene with the song Mary and the Librarian um, not being sung by the students, but the students are basically moving props in the background because it takes place in a library and all the students would sit uh, with a book in front of our faces and then our feet were doing little dance moves, right? Because you're trying to be quiet because it's in a library, but also it was a song song and dance kind of number. So in this play, the props were all old dusty looking books that the director had found and my particular prop book every time I opened it up um, it opened to selections from Epictetus I had no idea who Epictetus was Um, but I the words were in front of my face so of course I started reading them I realized Epictetus was really into this guy named Socrates thought he was right about everything Um, and I was really interested in what I was reading. It seemed like, a, actually at the time, a very appealing moral philosophy and way of life for me as a 17-year-old. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I started reading it in between scenes. Uh, and when the show was almost over, I was beginning to panic that I wasn't going to have this book anymore. So this was the olden days when I didn't think, you know, go on the internet and find it. <laughs> so instead, I asked the director if I could borrow the book 
and I didn't tell her what for, but she said, I, I guess, sure. Um, and I took it to the school and our school's old photocopier in the library, and I photocopied the entire section of selections <laughs> from Epictetus because I had become fixated and clearly... I wasn't sure who the other philosophers were, and I didn't care. But this guy Epictetus really knew what it was about. Um, and uh, when I came back and I thanked her and gave her the book, and I explained to her what I'd been doing with it, she said, well, you know, um, I have – that's one of a set of four books with selections from philosophers. Do you just want the set? I don't need it. And I was thrilled, and I still have it. It's actually on display in my house on my mantle is where I keep it. Oh, that's um, awesome. Yeah, so – so that got me interested enough that when I went to university for biology the next year, I signed up for Philosophy 100, which I now realize was being taught by one of the department's adjuncts, who I believe was a continental philosopher, um, but she was just doing a general history of philosophy, Philosophy 100 class. And so at the end of the very first class, I walked up to her and was like, yeah, is there going to be any Epictetus in this course? And she looked at me like... I was insane, and and she said, that's a Greek, right? <laughs> um, anyway, it was a great course. Once I figured out how to not write like I'd been in my English classes, which was basically the night before writing out of my head, <laughs> um, and, uh, and relying on an ability to write well, but not with a particular amount of content to get A's. And once I got over that and got the feedback from a TA, uh, that said, you seem to write well, but this is not philosophy. <laughs> I managed to have it click in my head. Um, I got that first D of college out of the way with. <laughs> um, and I ended up a couple years later declaring the major. Could you tell us a little bit about, I, I think that this is great, uh, your mom's influence in that? Yeah, yeah. I've told McKay this story before. So uh, my experience is a little different from a lot of other philosophy students. When I was going into the sciences, I'd really had it driven into my head that uh, if I wanted to be successful, um, I shouldn't do the arts, right? You're good at the arts, but that's like a hobby. That's part-time. You can, you know, do plays in your spare time and write in your spare time. And certainly philosophy, I thought, was going to fall into that category. And partway through my second year, it was during exams, and I was prepping for my um, chemistry exam. And I just felt like my soul was being crushed. Now, this is nothing against the sciences, which I continue to love. But the first couple years of the sciences is a lot of memorization. And I had come into university expecting to, to get to ask big questions and discover things about the world. And my science courses were trying to prepare me to do that in a particular method. <laughs> um, but it wasn't stimulating enough. I hated spending hours just trying to memorize things. Uh, and I remember lying on my mom's bed just being like, I just don't even want to do this. I'm so miserable. And she said, well, you really seem to enjoy your philosophy elective. Why don't you major in that? And I was like, mom, no one majors in philosophy. That's a terrible idea. Like, what would I do with that? And she was like, well, you're really passionate about it. You seem to be good at it. And I just really believe if you do what you're passionate about, you'll be successful. And I was like, yeah, right. <laughs> um, however, I was pretty miserable. And it was enough of a push for me to develop a plan, which was fine. I'm going to major in philosophy, but only because I'm going to go to law school. Fun fact, I never even looked into taking the LSAT. So 
How serious was that? It was it was like the crutch I needed <laughs> to make the transition. Um, and then when I actually finished my undergrad degree, I had obviously great parental support to look into grad school. And I did a master's in Canada and then a PhD in Canada and a postdoc in Belgium. That's awesome. I'm curious. I mean, I know many of these interests because I've taken classes <laughs> from you. But what are some of your interests to those who are listening in philosophy? In philosophy. So I have mostly approached philosophy and philosophical topics from a historical lens. Um, I think that's probably mostly a product of my training. A lot of the courses and coursework I did was history of philosophy. My first great love was probably Plato, actually. Um, when I went into my master's program, I thought I was going to work on Plato. And in particular, I was interested in the way the the form of the dialogues and the humanizing of philosophical discourse was important to understanding Plato's philosophy, since it stands out from the majority of the Western philosophical tradition, which is in essays and treaties. Um, and I think because I had a theater background, I was particularly interested. Um, and I was thinking a lot about the role empathy plays in pedagogy, and in particular the role empathy might play in uh, philosophical thought, and how Plato might have been aware of this, and that was part of the reason for the form of the writing. I don't know if I agree with that anymore, by the way, but that was the, the <laughs> angle I was taking at the time. Um, but when I got into my master's program, I learned that the one ancient professor they had who was very good was going to be on sabbatical for the year of my one year program. Um, so it kind of necessitated my looking into other topics. Um, and there was only well, there were two history courses being offered while I was there. One was on um, the positivist, logical positivism did not convince me to do logical positivism um, as a research project. But the other was on the philosopher David Hume. Yes. Who I had studied in my undergrad, and he was presented to me as he's often presented, which is kind of just as a, a negative philosopher, um, a skeptic. He's mostly there to object to everything that came before him and then pave the way for Kant's brilliance. And that's how he'd been taught. And I hadn't been particularly interested in Hume in my undergrad. So when I saw he was the only historical figure that I could take a course in, I was like, oh, great, okay, fine, whatever. However, in this class, we read the entirety of the treatise, um, and that included book two on the passions, uh, where Hume famously argues that reason is and ought only to be a slave of the passions. And as I started to grapple with that claim, with the associated argument, as I started to understand Hume as having a positive project where he's painting what cognition looks like for humans and he's trying to reconceive rationality as something that necessarily has to be tied to our felt experience um, and in particular is tied to sympathetic experience we have with other people. Um, I realized, hey, the stuff I'm interested in, in empathy and um, what it is to seek knowledge in a social setting and as a being who is um, aware of receiving and working with um, empathically adopted perspectives, not just emotions, but also the felt component of, of knowledge. Um, I realized I could, I could do this. I could write on this guy. This stuff's great. Um, and so then my research really took a turn into philosophy of emotion um, and moral psychology insofar as I was concerned with empathy and sympathy. Uh, but all of it was 
mostly still to the end of trying to make sense of Hume's epistemology and make sense of some account of what it is to be rational um, that defeats this kind of traditional Western narrative where rationality and feeling are two kind of distinct faculties or distinct parts of what it is to be human. And frequently we're taught that the rationality ought to be privileged above the feeling, that the feeling is problematic to rationality, problematic to our capacity to be moral and respond appropriately to others. Um, and on a theological front, traditionally, our embodied emotions are human and not the part of us that resembles the divine. Um, so I was fascinated with this partly because I came from a theological tradition that taught me that God is embodied, that God has emotions. And so my picture of what it is to become like the divine had to incorporate my felt embodied state. Um, and Hume seemed a great theorist. It's what I'd been exposed to, to start engaging in some of these ideas. So I still work mostly in interpretive work on Hume. Um, but insofar as my research program is kind of growing, um, it's grown to, to include um, some of the contemporary work that's being done on the science of affectivity, so very interdisciplinary contemporary work on affectivity, um, philosophy of emotion, and the cognitive science and even some of the neuroscience surrounding what sorts of creatures we are, how we can better understand our reasoning capacities as tied to our embodied biological nature um, and our felt experience of the world. So can we talk a little bit about more about that? Yes. Um, a lot of people have heard philosophy of mind, but maybe they haven't heard philosophy of emotion. So could you tell us more about what does it mean to do philosophy of emotion and also talk about the interdisciplinary nature of it, because a lot of people think, well, what do you, I mean, I had a friend ask me, what do you do for philosophy? I mean, I run an experiment, but I just don't get, what are you guys doing? Yeah, yeah. So philosophy of mind and philosophy of motion, I tend to think of as actually pretty distinct, even though there can be some crossover. Um, most of the discourse in philosophy of mind is trying to work out the nature of consciousness and the nature of cognition. Um, so whether that's dealing with the mind-body problem or dealing with uh, what it, the qualia, the, the qualitative aspects of consciousness, if you think that's a thing that exists. Um, and then certainly stuff about the structure of thinking. Um, and that, that gets us into epistemology, that gets you into philosophy of language, and that potentially also gets you into philosophy of emotion. Um, Philosophy of emotion as its own discipline, though, even though it has that crossover with philosophy of mind, I think is more treated as related to work in moral psychology uh, and maybe general questions about human nature. Um, lots of crossover between all of these, obviously. So as to what the philosopher does say in something like philosophy of emotion, um, Philosophy of Emotion is a really good example, actually, to talk about some of what a philosopher does. Because, yeah, you might say you don't go into a lab and look at emotions. But what you can say is, how do you go into a lab and look at emotions if you don't have a pre-existing theory about what emotions are and how you would recognize them? Um, we can't design that kind of empirical research without some pre-existing framework for understanding and, and structuring um, an experiment, a set of questions, a way of interpreting the data that we get. So empirical research doesn't give raw empirical data that suggests, 
a way that the world is. We have to bring to the table some account of how the world is. And that account shouldn't be completely divorced from the empirical data, right? There needs to be a feedback between what we gain empirically and how we shape our theories, but also we don't we're not able to get that information, that data, without bringing a framework to the picture in the first place. The reason philosophy of emotion is a particularly interesting area of philosophy is that emotion is a term we all use in everyday language. And I'm obviously speaking about English and English speakers here, but I think um, we can kind of track usage of terms that suggest affective mental states or felt mental states in other languages. And we can probably find similar sort of background assumptions about what it is to be human and what it is to feel. Um, certainly within English, we use this word emotion very, very broadly. And when you challenge someone whether it's an everyday speaker or someone who even researches emotion, um, to define and really outline that category and how it relates to other categories that we are distinctions we make when we look at human cognition and human nature. Um, turns out it's a very controversial, very difficult project. My dissertation did a little bit of work to try and track why it's the case by looking at the history of the adoption of the English term emotion. Um, it replaced a diversity of terms for affective mental states. There used to be a lot more discussion of, well, the affections, the passions, discussion of sentiments. So um, these also had kind of slippery, fuzzy boundaries between each other, but there was a, a bigger package overall of terms that were used to discuss affectivity, feeling. Starting about 50 years after Hume, emotion became started to become this dominant term in English. Um, that's kind of an umbrella term that tries to capture a huge diversity of experience as it pertains to cognition and feeling. Um, so it includes terms that seem to have to do with things we feel in the body. So there's a fuzzy boundary between emotions and say appetites or just kind of hunger kind of responses to the world around us. Um, it's used to describe moods which have no object. I might just feel generally angry, not at anything in particular, but I'm just in an angry mood. And of course, it's used to talk about kind of the more classic emotions, including things like anger, which typically have an object. They have an intentional structure. So my anger is directed at something or my desire is directed at something. Is my happiness directed at something? Sometimes I'm joyful because of a particular thing. Sometimes I characterize it as a mood. So you see how difficult it is to actually make sense. It's not handed to us in English how um, how these terms work, how these categories work, especially insofar as we might be trying to take them and turn it into something where we can gather empirical research. So the crossover with areas like psychology and neuroscience um, is that there's a lot of interest in feeling empathy, what it is to be an emotional being and a rational being in these empirical sciences. Um, but we have a history of experiment design that's been built on maybe shaky conceptual schemas for understanding the emotions. Uh, and so it's hard to say what exactly um, experiments are doing or what how we could interpret that data. Um, so it seems to me, and it's not just me, there's a lot of people who think this, that there needs to be really robust communication and conversation between philosophers who are working on the level of theory and conceptual mapping, and we need to be responsive to the empirical data. It's 
you don't want to build a conceptual map that um, doesn't actually reflect some of what we find. I mean, in the history of philosophy, we see a lot of that. I love Aristotle, and he's amazing as an early biologist, but you see a ton of how he's unreflectively bringing his worldview to the picture in how he interprets the empirical data. It's not, he's not just straightforwardly observing, right? See his writing on women. <laughs> um, to prove this point very, very clearly, he is bringing his own cultural perspective to bear on his empirical research. Um, that is still happening today. Of course it is, because we're human. Um, so there needs to be this process where the empirical sciences are responsive to innovations in the conceptual work, the philosophical work on things like emotion. Um, and then within philosophy, we need to try and be responsive to what's being discovered in the natural world um, and make sure that our theories are responsive to what's actually there which would have helped Aristotle on the woman question for sure. <laughs> so tying back to good old Epictetus. Yeah. Uh, there's been a rise in, you can't see this, but I'm saying stoicism in quotation marks, dear, dear listener. Uh, and with it, there's a sort of broicism. The idea that, hey, let's take these stoic principles and just use it to make money. So what do you think as a philosopher of emotion, someone who's also very familiar with a lot of stoic views, uh, about this rise in broicism, what's wrong with it, and how should we conceive of emotions instead? Yeah, so I um, I should say, obviously, I've already given a narrative where my starting place in philosophy was Stoicism. Um, for those who don't know, Epictetus was a, a slave in the Hellenistic period who who was, he was also actually crippled, and he was a Stoic philosopher. He wrote a lot about um, how to thrive and um, how ultimately to have tranquility. I mean, the Stoic idea of happiness is not like joy, maybe <laughs> in a robust sense. Um, but he, he wrote a lot about um, contentment from a Stoic perspective from a very compromised living situation. Um, and that was what initially attracted me. Um, and some people know that uh, Stoicism is kind of a very early version, or at least is is part of the intellectual history of practices like cognitive behavioral therapy. So therapeutic approaches that say, look, your beliefs make a difference for how you feel. And, and sometimes things we're frustrated with or making us sad or making it so that we can't thrive and can't move forward are actually tied up in bad beliefs about the world. So if we do a kind of therapy, if we do a kind of questioning that allows us to um, revise and reconsider bad beliefs, uh, it can have an impact on our emotional state. Now the stoic claim is, is stronger. It's that um, our emotions are based on bad judgments. And when we judge appropriately, we can live in a kind of, if not affect-free, a kind of low affect life state where um, we're not having these volatile emotional responses to things. Now, in terms of my now rejection of stoicism, um, I, I think I'm gonna just, for the purposes of this interview, I'm gonna say, look, I'm not gonna address um, sophisticated forms of Stoicism, particularly some of the sophisticated ancient forms, which actually 
showed up in in more nuance than they're often represented. Um, and I'm not going to do that partly because I have friends who've studied this kind of stoicism and do philosophy of emotion and will have an answer to every critique I have. Um, <laughs> so let's I'm limit sure it to broicism right. then. So let's talk about this contemporary versions of stoicism. Um, broicism, if it isn't obvious from the term, <laughs> there is a, a kind of subcategory of those who are interested in stoicism that are mostly male, um, that largely are feeling um, alienated by contemporary movements like feminism. Uh, and I think there's a certain safety in the idea that if I can just cut back to what's purely rational, no one can tell me what I'm feeling is wrong. No one can tell me I'm responsible for their feelings anymore because I've got a picture where everyone has to work on their own beliefs and everyone's feelings are a product of ignorance and bad thinking. Um, and, and that's a very validating perspective if you think that you can achieve that kind of um, value neutral, I'm not affected by things. So what's the problem with that? I mean, there's this, there's social issues with that. There's also philosophical issues. The philosophical issue, I think, is that it's that shallow version of stoicism reinforces this problematic Western narrative where reason is conceived of as a faculty that is entirely separate from feeling, right? Um, it's It's the idea that I can, from where I stand, achieve a certain kind of um, objectivity. I can imagine myself in a disembodied way and separate myself from my emotions and my feelings and kind of what I perceive as weaknesses that come from my embodied state. Um, Cartesian pure mind, right? I can uh, extract myself from that context, which is the source of pain for a lot of people and is the source of conflict and is the place where you have to countenance that other people aren't feeling and thinking the same way you are. But if I can abstract away from all that and get to the realm of pure reason, um, I don't have to be responsive to my own feelings. I don't have to be responsive to other people's feelings and I can be kind of protected from it. Um, philosophically, the problem is I think that's just a really bad picture of mind. <laughs> um, there's really cool interdisciplinary research going on right now um, that is drawing in things like evolutionary psychology and evolutionary biology and neuroscience and psychology and philosophy and is saying it turns out what it is to be human is yes to have these amazing higher order thought capacities um, we have re reflective powers um, our linguistic abilities make us really different from a lot of the rest of the creatures that we know of in the world. Um, however, all of that is has kind of emerged from a common biology that includes um, empathy and social tendency and feeling. Um, so beginning to understand that there's a kind of constant feedback between our higher thought capacities and our felt responses um, and starting to get how much work the brain and body do that isn't on the level of conscious thought and kind of propositional uh, belief formation. Um, so propositional belief formation, which is kind of the the zone that we've, you know, kind of thought of the Cartesian mind, right, um, is amazing and is really, really useful and has made us successful as a species, but doesn't function in isolation from the rest of that embodied nature and that embodied cognition. Um, and anytime we try and make it function in separation, um, we're 
for one thing, denying part of who we are and part of what's going on. So often in the case of um, broicism, I guess, or other forms of kind of uber rational attempts at engaging humanity, uh, this involves straight up ignoring or trying to ignore how your situated embodied state informs the way you see the world, the way you think about the world. So it's hanging on to this idea that I have objectivity um, that involves denial about the ways in which um, I'm embodied, I'm feeling, and I'm situated, and that informs my objective, now I'm doing air quotes, <laughs> my <laughs> objective take on the world, right? Um, so the problem with that kind of shallow stoicism, to my mind, is that it tries very hard to think that we can get away from parts of what it is to be human that are very fundamental to what it is to be human. And it uh, requires a kind of engagement that closes us off to uh, effective um, empathizing and connecting with other humans, which I think is a really, I think we're social creatures. And I think even what it is to be rational as a human involves uh, an appropriate sort of empathic engagement with other minds. Um, and again, since I can't speak from an LDS perspective, to my mind, this very much is in keeping with what we understand about what it is to become like Christ. Christ being the ultimate example of, of empathy, of uh, bridging between minds. Um, the idea that in the atonement, Christ was able to experience the mental states of others and that that's informed the power of that act and also informed his capacity to succor his people, to respond to others. If that's what we're meant to be emulating, then surely any kind of theory that separates me from my embodiedness and my feeling, which are going to be the vehicles through which I understand other people's experience, um, is, is a problem. How would you say your study of philosophy has given you the vocabulary to articulate a lot of these ideas. This is huge. And, and this is something that I would love to yell from the rooftops to people. <laughs> so <laughs> philosophy gets a bad rap in LDS culture. You guys might have heard philosophies of man, apparently not a good thing. There were air quotes again there, by the way. <laughs> listeners. Um, and, uh, and I take it that what is often meant when that phrase comes up over and over again in conference and we're warned against the philosophies of the world, um, we're being warned against ideologies. We're being warned against particular systems that assert claims and that tell you I've got all the answers to whatever your question is and look like they've got this tight, needy package or neat, neat, tidy package <laughs> of, of points of view or perspectives, claims about the world all sort of worked out and systematized. And people hear that and go, well, gosh, if that's not consistent with, you know, what I've learned in the gospel, then one of them's got to go out the window, right? That's, that's what ideology does. And I agree, ideology is suspicious. It's a problem. Um, in fact, I do study Hume, and he is a skeptic, and I've come to terms with the idea that actually a certain kind of what I call methodological skepticism can be really helpful because it helps slows us down when we meet these ideologies that claim to be able to explain everything to us. So that's the bad philosophy of man type stuff from my perspective. What philosophy 
though, as a discipline and as a practice does, is it encourages us not just to ask questions, but just like Socrates did, as we ask those questions, we begin to see distinctions and nuance in the things we're talking about. And we begin to try and build conceptual schema, which we need to be able to revise and we need to be able to change and shift as we get new information. But while we go through that practice, we gain access to um, questions and terms and concepts, and we have words that go with those concepts that we don't have before we study this stuff. So to your question, Brandon, of what uh, study of philosophy brings to my ability to articulate the things I'm thinking and feeling, I feel like I just have this giant toolkit. And it's not, sometimes when you talk to people and you're articulate, they they have the tendency to kind of write that off as that's that's just a smart person, right? So I really want to emphasize, no, it's someone who's taken the time to develop this toolkit. And, and I think that philosophy taught well should be broadly um, accessible. One of the things I challenge myself to do, and it is hard sometimes, is to never shy away from any question my child asks. Children are very philosophical, and they ask very hard questions. And... Um, if I can't answer their question in language and in a framing that they can understand, then I'm not sure I've understood it yet. But there's a connection between the simplicity of the language I'll use to talk to my children and the complexity of the language and the conceptual schema that I've gained through studying philosophy. Understanding that technical philosophical babble well has involved seeing why those terms are useful shorthand for concepts that can be broken into smaller digestible pieces. And so it's a, a challenge I try to give myself <laughs> um, to use, be able to explain things using language that's accessible, but at the same time, I think theory is great. And I think the technical language of philosophy, um, once you become comfortable with it, is a phenomenal tool for being able to better understand things that are very, very important to you, whether it's your morality or um, your very nature, the nature of other people. Certainly things like God and religion and um, the gospel are enriched by having this toolkit. Mm. Every bone in my body wants to scream, I love that. <laughs> it's, I, I think we as students and as you know, studying philosophy, so um, sometimes we get so caught up in all of this terminology that we forget how to have a conversation with, you know, a little child about some of the things that we do on a regular basis. And I find it really interesting that there's there's a connection, I think, to the gospel here. Um, and you, you talked about this a little bit, but I would love to hear how is your study of philosophy and of the Savior how has that kind of made you a, a better disciple of Jesus Christ? Yeah, thanks for that question. Um, one of the things I've thought a lot in recent years since getting a job at BYU and um, realizing now that when I go to philosophy conferences, my lanyard says BYU. I remember the first time I went to a conference and I, I thought, oh my gosh, it's like having a missionary badge on. Um, and not everyone assumes that you're LDS because you work at BYU, but they often end up asking at some point if they don't already know. Um, 
And so it just, it brought my religion to the forefront of who I was as a philosopher in a way that I hadn't experienced before. Before it was the case that uh, it was once I got to know someone in a professional context that would probably, the topic of religion might come up or I might share something about my my beliefs and my faith. Um, but now it was just there, right? And so I've thought a lot about um, how do I communicate in direct and indirect ways what it is to be a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to these people, many of whom have um, well-grounded suspicions about organized religion, <laughs> um, some of whom are openly hostile or at least uh, dismissive of religious belief. And these are great people who I love and adore, and I want them to love and adore me. So it became really important to me that I find ways, again, both explicitly but also um, subtly, to make my discipleship how I engaged. Um, and that's where I think the meeting place of, of thinking hard about uh, philosophically about things like empathy and um, virtue and character and what it is to be a person who is appropriately responsive to those around them helped give me a framework for thinking about what it was to be a disciple of Christ. Um, to to study how we naturally respond and start understanding how the history of thought has at times disconnected us from a very human empathic response to other people. Um, and then say, now that I understand that and I can see it in the world and in my behavior in a different way, I can apply um, principles of what it is to be like Christ, to um, comfort the, those that stand in need of comfort, to mourn with those that mourn, which it's such a cool pairing once you start studying uh, empathy, right? Because mourning with those that mourn is crying with the person who's crying. It's allowing yourself to enter the emotional space of the person that you're with. Comfort is the active step. And a lot of the time in the church, we're, we, we want to figure out how to take the active step. Like we want to drop off the casserole or we want to <laughs> serve someone explicitly in some way. Um, but really getting the conceptual distinction that we're both being required to sit with other people's difficult feelings, things that are uncomfortable and they're hard for them and they're hard for us and we don't know what to say, but that's actually part of what we've covenanted to do. And then that's supposed to be paired with active service. Um, that informs how I hope, how I engage people in a professional setting. Uh, when we get talking about moral psychology and moral philosophy, I might not reference Christ, but often the philosophical principles I'm presenting are coming from my understanding of what it is to be a disciple of Christ and what it is to be Christ-like. Um, so I emphasize that, hey, you know, maybe uh, in response, say, to a theory like hedonism, um, I say, well, isn't there something valuable to the, the kind of shared experience of a suffering? Um, isn't there something valuable to um, an identity that extends to include other people in such a way that my flourishing is tied to your flourishing? Uh, and I, I've thought a lot about how I would, in philosophical terms, motivate for um, colleagues, and sometimes I've had a chance to talk about it, but motivate um, my Christianity, motivate my commitment to Christ. And it all comes down to saying, the atonement is a principle that allows us to um, to make sense of human suffering by insisting on our 
role as as empathizers, um, our role to feel with others and then seek to make things better for them, and and the reciprocity of that kind of relationship, um, that the atonement is a, a way of seeing that things really do suck for people sometimes, so we can countenance how hard things are, um, and say, look, there is a way out of this. There's a way out for everyone. Um, it involves us trying to work together and support each other. It involves you having a individually a trusting relationship with the Savior. But even that by itself isn't the end. We have this amazing theology that involves wanting to build human relationships, not just in our immediate family, not just in the humans that live at the same time as me, but there's this grand project where I'm meant to be slowly relationship building with all of humankind. And that, that's a profound picture of the potential of our moral psychology to move from this kind of preferential treatment of the self and those most closely associated it out, you know, circle after circle with the hope that eventually not just geography, but also time doesn't even make a difference for the degree to which I'm willing to um, be available to connect with other human beings. Um, so for me... <laughs> There's huge crossover that I am so grateful I've been able to, to come to BYU ultimately. Um, huge crossover between my religious theological commitments and, um, and what I've gained from philosophy. Um, the philosophical systems I have interest in are the systems that seem to me to allow me to become a better disciple of Christ. So could you tell us a bit about that journey, starting from an undergrad and then being hired to BYU, uh, especially when I congratulate you, you've just become an associate professor. So could yes, you tell us about that great journey and why it's such a great accomplishment that you've just become an associate and what that, what that all entails? Let me tell you when my accomplishment is such a great accomplishment. <laughs> um, your framing, not mine. <laughs> no, I, it's, been, it's been a really really cool journey. I um, admit to being one of those people who kind of, like I said, in, when I switched to philosophy in my undergrad, I thought I was going to do law. But, but did I really? <laughs> I I was living in the moment and I had a vocal justification if anyone asked me why I was living in the moment in a philosophy classroom. Um, but to a certain degree, it played out that way. When I went in to do my master's degree, I said, okay, I'm going to go do a master's in philosophy, but I'm going to do a bioethics focus um, so that I can work in a hospital setting. At that point, I'd worked in long-term care facilities before um, and had a real interest in, um, in working with people who were um, suffering from dementia and Alzheimer's and had very strong, young, enthusiastic opinions about what it was to give good care to someone who was increasingly cognitively compromised. So how could we maximize their agency? How could we be properly responsive to their lived experience was a lot of what was driving me at that point. Um, but then when I got <laughs> into my master's program and I took some bioethics, I realized that what I really wanted to do was metaethics that I eventually wanted to apply in these areas. But I, 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 didn't, um, I didn't see that at first. What I saw was the readings I was doing in my bioethics class were asking me to apply preset systems, which did not include virtue ethics or relational ethics or a lot of the kind of ethical systems I'm more interested in. It was mostly choosing between deontology and utilitarianism, and I found it really unsatisfying. So again, I ended up slipping back into history 
Um, So I ended up, I was very fortunate. I had a fantastic mentor, Nathan Brett um, at Dalhousie in Canada, Dalhousie University in Canada. And uh, he asked me after I took the Hume course with him if I would develop my term paper with him. Sound familiar? I've maybe done this with students here at BYU. (laughs) Um, But he asked me if I'd develop it into a paper with him, and I was thrilled. Um, That was my first major conference presentation, was with him at the Hume Conference while I was still a PhD student. And um, that was my first publication. Uh, So I had really good mentorship, which is part of the reason I think Hume became the place where I would play out these ideas and these interests. And I mean, Hume's also really well suited to the ideas and the interests I have. Um, After I completed my master's, I went to a PhD program in Canada, the University of Western Ontario, where I was able to work with Lauren Falkenstein, who is a big deal in Hume scholarship and is brilliant and... um, incredibly impressive in the kind of detail with which he can engage in this type of historical work. I think I really benefited from having a mentor who had that type of approach. It suited me. It played to my strengths in doing close reading of text. Uh, And I just lost myself in the treatise, particularly book two of the treatise, while I was uh, working on my PhD. Um, Close to the end of my PhD, I actually had the opportunity to go and um, be supervised by a scholar named um, Willem Lemons, who's at the University of Antwerp. So I finished my PhD um, in Antwerp and ended up with a rather unique thing on my CV. I have a jointly awarded PhD from the University of Antwerp and the University of Western Ontario. Uh, And I transitioned from a PhD student to a postdoctoral student at the University of Antwerp, um, working in their Center for Ethics on Hume and on all these issues surrounding um, sympathy and the nature of the emotions in Hume. Uh, And after that, after my postdoc, I came back from Belgium pregnant um, and we uh, came back into Canada where I could pick up some adjunct work while my husband finished his degree work and I had a couple babies went on the academic job market, um, and I'd had a year where I'd had a couple interviews. You've probably heard the academic job market is very, very difficult (laughs) and terrifying. Um, So my first year on it, I'd managed a couple interviews but hadn't landed a position, but that actually was really encouraging. You should know that's how you need to feel about near misses in philosophy, whether it's grad school or jobs. (laughs) Um, You are doing really well. if you get some good near misses. Um, and then the next year, I, uh, I had a, a opportunity that looked like it was emerging at a, another um, university in the States. And some close family friends who are actually mathematicians up in Canada, um, but both had connections with BYU. I was having dinner with them one night, and they said, have you looked into whether or not BYU is hiring? And I said, oh, I, I mean, I don't know. They... Like I, I had stopped into the, I'd been to Utah once for general conference and it was a Friday afternoon and I'd run into the philosophy department because I'd just never met anyone who was LDS and a philosopher before at that point and I just wanted to meet one and say <laughs> hi. Um, and on a Friday afternoon, it was Dan Graham who Bless was in his man. office. Yeah, and I talked to him for a bit and, and he'd taken my contact information and he told me that they wanted to keep track of me because they like to keep track of grad students, except they didn't. So when these friends asked, did you want uh, have you looked into BYU? I said, well, yeah, I mean, I once sent them something because in the 
years in between, I'd send something and then I'd never heard anything back. And I said, and I met them once, but or met one of them once, but nothing really happened. And I don't think they're interested. You know, I said, I don't know. Like, I'm, I, I don't know if I fit Utah very well. It's, you know, just in Europe and before I grew up in Canada. And if you know politics of those places, that probably says enough. <laughs> so I thought maybe like they're just not interested in me. But these friends really insisted. They said, I think you'd be a great fit. I think you'd love the department. You've got to go check it out. And so I went, OK, fine. And, and so I went online and looked at the department page and uh, figured out who the chair was. And um, even though in my head I was saying, I've already got a job on the horizon. Like, I think things are going to work out this year. Don't even know why I'm doing this, but I sent an email to the person who was the chair at the time um, and just said, hey, um, I'm LDS. I'm on the job market. Here's my CV. I don't know if you'd be interested at all, but just so you know, I'm out there. Uh, and I got an email back really quickly saying, can we have you out just to give a talk, like not even interview? Can we just fly you out to come give a talk? Um, which was quickly followed up by, and yes, please apply on the position. Um, and it was a phenomenal experience. I remember first coming to BYU. Um, I, I remember this moment where I walked into the philosophy seminar room, and uh, and I really hadn't met anyone yet. I'd just been email correspondence. I think at that point I'd, I'd met the, the secretary um, in the main office. But I remember walking into that seminar room and all of the current faculty were in the room and it was like hitting, like the spirit was like a wall I hit as I walked in. It was like walking into a swimming pool, like it was just in the air and the countenances of the men in the room um, seemed so bright and so full of love and it was unlike anything I'd ever experienced walking into an academic setting before. And I love academic settings, and I love my colleagues in academia, but there was something that felt so familiar and so safe and so whole. Um, it was quite a profound experience walking into the room with those with those people. And, and then when I got a chance to give a talk and the students started interacting with me, and you're going to think I'm biased, but I'm talking about the time before I was biased. <laughs> BYU students stand out. Their ability to ask questions, to look you in the eye, to be articulate, to remember you. That was another thing. I gave the talk, and then I came back two months later. And as I was walking in the hall, one of the students who'd been to my talk said, Hi, Dr. Paxman. And I was like, where am I that college <laughs> students remember some random person who was here two months ago to give a talk? And now I know I was at BYU. <laughs> um, so when I when I interviewed and I got to teach a class and the students blew me away, um, I, I, the students blew me away, the faculty blew me away, the spirit overall was just really strong and um, it was pretty clear that this was the place uh, I was meant to land. So. And now... How about the rigmarole of getting to associate professor? So, <laughs> so if you are on the tenure track, as they call it, or the CFS track, as they call it at BYU, um, if you decide to have two babies while in that period, maybe hope there's not a pandemic. <laughs> um, because in the end, <laughs> I'd been ambitious to actually, sometimes if you have enough publications, you're allowed to go up a year early. So forget deferring. 
I I had had one baby and I'd had my second baby and I was still like, I might be able to make it that year early. And then the pandemic hit and mm-hmm, it was really challenging. <laughs> um, so, I mean, there's a lot I could say about that process. Um, the way academia is structured, it, the steepest learning curve is in your first several years while you have to develop all your courses. That's also when you're engaging often in a learning curve of figuring out how to get published and you're supposed to be trying to network. And um, it's also when it's highest stakes to be successful at these things. So the structure of academic positions is um, not great. <laughs> it's, it's kind of a, a, a really good recipe for burnout. Um, and and I, I'm not saying this is someone who's got the answer to how we fix the system that works this way. Uh, but it's absolutely true that you are trying to learn the most while producing really aggressively for your first several years in an academic position. Uh, in my case and in the case of a lot of women, this can correspond with um, when you would be having a family when it makes sense to be having babies. Um, so that is another element <laughs> that is is complicating. Um, I have a lot of opinions on the other side about what good work-life balance might look like, about um, what kinds of changes I think we need to make um, concerning workplace culture as well as academic culture that could support families better. And it isn't just women having babies, though having a baby is... A pretty big deal in terms of the the physical and emotional drain. Um, being a father, though, is going to have a similar um, emotional cognitive drain, and I think that um, we could be doing a lot to better support people who are trying to have families while they're trying to do this. I also think that it would be really cool if we could figure out a way to make it so that academia didn't try to kill you as kind of the bar to pass <laughs> to like, and I mean, this starts at the level of grad school, I think, but there's this kind of- I don't of, know, there are times where I feel as an undergrad well, academia no, is trying no, to kill me too. It's true, it's true. Well, and this is the problem with this kind of culture is it has had a trickle-down effect. I think that high school students are under more pressure and stress today than I was as a high school student. So um, so there's the, the, we got to figure out as a culture here at some point how to stop making productivity and progressing the primary value um, that tends to um, take over everything else, every other aspect of what it might be to live a healthy, happy human life. Um, so, but I'm out on the other side and I'm, you know, sleep deprived still. And there's this thing where you're so desperate to try and make sure you've got all the research and all the involvement to get uh, the permanent position that you set yourself up for work for like the next two years after you've achieved tenure or continuing faculty status. Um, so right now, instead of feeling like the relief and the break, I've been like, oh my gosh, I have like two papers to write by the spring and I'm running two conferences and I've volunteered in multiple. Anyway, my fault, I guess. But um, <laughs> uh, it's busy. Well, now let's move on to some fun stuff. That wasn't the fun stuff? No. Tell us a bit about your hobbies. Oh, 
I have too many hobbies. My kids were asking me the other day what I wanted for Christmas. And I was like, I just want time to do all the things I already <laughs> like doing. Um, so I do have a theater background. Um, I haven't been able to do theater since deciding to have children at the same time as getting a PhD and then um, trying to get a job in academia and then trying to get tenure. Um, however, that love of theater um, plays out in a few different contexts. Uh, one is that I, I have some background in making like props and costumes, so I really like doing that kind of things. A lot of my hobbies right now play out in like, what's the costume I'm making my children or how fancy is their birthday cake or the cookies. And, but honestly, these are all working with my hands, craft, working with artistic mind. I really like the design process on any of these. Like my kids tell me the craziest things they want in a cake design or in a costume design. And I'm like, we're doing this. <laughs> Most recently, tell me if you have ideas. My five-year-old who's been overhearing us read Harry Potter to the older kids has said he would like to be the dark mark for Halloween. Yeah, I don't, no, actually I do. I have ideas for what it's going to look like. <laughs> but so this is one of my hobbies. I love when I have a chance to sit down and sketch and to plan some project. Um, I like drawing and I like painting, so I enjoy the design phase partly for, for the aesthetics of actually doing the, the drawing and the painting or coloring. Um, and then I enjoy construction of cakes and cookies. I like it whenever I can do kind of detailed work, whether it's icing or fondant. Um, I really enjoy um, and I'm teaching myself more increasingly sewing and construction of, of costumes. So um, when I get a chance to be on my sewing machine, I play piano and I love playing the piano and I really like singing. I like choirs. <laughs> I've been teaching myself the ukulele and trying to remember the three chords on the guitar. I know <laughs> lately. Um, uh, all of these things I really enjoy. Um, most recently, a lot of my hobbies end up being reflections of what my kids are interested in. So for instance, this weekend, my 10-year-old and I first started trying to paint miniatures. <laughs> he did most of the painting, but I helped him plan and figure it out. Um, and uh, I've been doing some like collaborative storytelling with my children who um, are getting in on trying to world build with me. And just it's like a form of playing with the kids that's mm -hmm. been really fulfilling. So those are a smattering of my hobbies. I also like being outside and long walks on the beach. I am from the ocean, so <laughs> I, I miss that. Oh, and this summer, my husband and I took a sailing course, and so I'm totally going to be a sailor. That's the other thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, our last thing. We're going to play a game. Overrated or underrated? Okay. Or just right. So we're going to give you the name of a philosopher and then you are going to determine whether he or her is overrated or underrated or just right. Oh, man. So to okay. start off, Aristotle. Just right. He gets lots of attention. It's deserved. It's lots. <laughs> Second philosopher is Descartes. Uh, probably underrated, mostly because Descartes kind of been a... Uh, I don't know, the whipping boy when we want to disparage um, <laughs> mind-body dualism. It's true, right? Mm -hmm. Descartes gets slammed. He's kind of the starting place that people respond against. Um, what's interesting, I understand from friends who are Descartes scholars, is that he just was much more nuanced than he's usually represented. So I'll go with underrated. Descartes could get a little more love. All right. Kant. 
<laughs> Am I allowed? Am I allowed to talk you, about You are permitted. I'm being recorded. Um, <laughs> oh... I Slam him. Get him. It's okay. You can say it. Depends on who you talk to. Look, it's hard to say he's overrated because of the reach and the influence. In terms of how he's he's got some really good philosophy. Um, he also has some really hard to comprehend philosophy. <laughs> like, not necessarily in a good way. <laughs> um, so, look. Probably just right. I'll go with just right. I'll go with just right. You're generous. <laughs> <laughs> That's my own bias showing, though. <laughs> okay. Simone de Beauvoir? De Beauvoir. Um, yeah, probably probably just right. I, I think she's a really important philosopher. I think all female philosophers are underrated in a sense because there's still a tendency to underrepresent them. But were I to make choices about how to improve representation, I don't think it would involve amping up the amount of de Beauvoir. Mm -hmm. I think it would involve um, amping up representation of other women. So we'll say just right. Okay. And then last one, what do you think about Elizabeth Anscombe? I don't have a strong take on Anscombe, so I guess I'll say just right. Okay. But now I'm going to have to go and read more and get a strong response because <laughs> it really bugs me when I don't have one. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, thank you, Dr. Paxman. I'm glad you didn't name any of my colleagues for this. Over <laughs> no, they would have all been underrated. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Awesome. Well, thanks, Dr. Paxman. Thank you. It's fun. 